Well, once again, I want to wish you good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you've decided to join us here this morning, and we have been looking forward for some weeks to getting through the vacation season and getting back to shul, uh, as we like to call it in our house, and back to a, a pattern and a schedule. It is so good to see you all, and we hope to continue to see things, um, continuing to get back to normal as we get into the weeks ahead. I do want to bring some extra attention to two things that Tim said this morning. Uh, first is he mentioned the, the visitor cards or the welcome cards, and those look something like this. Now, we have them in multiple colors because we're not boring here at First Baptist Church, and so uh, it might be blue or it might be a greenish color or I don't know what colors Miss Jean has saw fit to print them off on over the recent weeks, but They're beautiful, and uh, we love them. So take the time to fill that out if you haven't yet. Uh, We'd love to have a record of your attendance. And once again, uh, our hospitality, our welcoming team has a great gift they'd love to give you this morning. So make sure to turn that in to one of our peeps standing out at the booth on your way out this morning. Also, I want to clarify just for a minute for you what's happening on our August 20th business meeting. That's not one of our normal business meetings where we go through all of the things. It is a called business meeting meaning that it is called for a purpose. It is, it is meant to accomplish one thing. And so all we've got is one item of business that we're going to be doing, and that is, uh, as you may guess if you've been around here, we have to fix yet another air conditioner. And so we need church approval uh, to access the funds for that. And so the trustees and Board of Finance will be uh, making a combined presentation to the church on what air conditioner. I think it's the one down in the hall at this point, um, down towards the children's wing that needs to be replaced. And so we've got quotes for that. Uh, so we ask that you stay. It'll just be a few minutes after the service. We should be able to get in, get it done, and get out. But it is a called business meeting. It is not a quarterly business meeting, and there is a difference. And so we hope you'll be here for us as we try to take care of that important piece of business. Let's go to the Lord in prayer once more as we turn our attention to his word this morning. Father God, we do praise and bless your holy name. We thank you, God, that you are good and that you are holy, that you are trustworthy, and that, Lord, come what may in our lives, that you are working and moving for your glory and for our good in all things. Lord, may we see that this morning, that even in difficult and dark times, Lord, even in times where we sit under your judgment and and feel the consequences of our own sins, God, may we understand that even in correction, you are still compassionate and gracious. God, may we see you in the truth of your word today. May we understand how that applies in our daily lives. May we be encouraged and challenged to lean into who you are and who you've called us to be, that we might follow you and represent you and love the world you came to save all the more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was a kid growing up in northern Indiana, uh, snow was a common sight during the winters. And it took a lot of it up north of Indy for school to be canceled. As a matter of fact, not only did it take a lot of it for school to be canceled, it, it took a lot of it for recess to be canceled. See, in these days, back when I was a kid, we didn't cancel school for a little bit of snow and a little bit of cold. You reach a special point in life when you can, life when you can say that and be serious, have a straight face. But back when I was a kid, we didn't cancel for those things. 
We just cleared off the snow off the parking lot and we called the kids. If there was not eight inches of snow between the hours of about four and six, we weren't canceling. They might delay a little bit, but you were going to school and provided it wasn't negative 65, you were going to recess. Like y'all bundle up like Randy in a Christmas story and hapaya, we're going outside. Which for us wasn't necessarily a bad thing. As a matter of fact, when, when it snowed a lot the day that we were coming to school, we knew that it was going to be a special day of recess for us because our playground at the school that I attended butted right up against the parking lot. Now, I get that that is a safety concern these days, but when I was a kid, we weren't concerned about safety, right? We figured that kids either would have enough common sense to avoid the car or it was their loss, right? And don't judge me because some of y'all parents had kids and their whole lives, you were the seatbelt, right? That was life back then. And so they would pile up all this snow and there would be these mountainous snowbanks right up against the edge of the playground. And for us, that meant only one thing, king of the mountain, right? But it wasn't normal king of the mountain. It was king of the mountain combined with WWE, You didn't just simply push someone off of the top of the mountain. No, 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 no. You suplexed them or power slammed them off the top of the mountain, which in general was okay because there was a good soft-ish snowbank down at the bottom. Now, occasionally, you'd hit a block of ice, and we'd have a broken collarbone. So eventually, parents complained about child safety, and so we didn't get to play the game very often anymore, except... For on the rare occasion that we would have a substitute on recess duty. You know, kids, kids, teachers know this. Kids can smell fresh blood in the water. Right? I hate to admit it, but we were those kids at our school. And I don't know who was the one that smelled the blood in the snow. But as we went outside, all packed up and closed, you could see the train of elementary boys jetting for the mountains of snow. And I knew it was game time, baby. And sure enough, in moments, we were just pounding each other off that snowbank. You know, bam! And, you know, WWE, ultimate worrying up. I remember there was one poor kid. His name was Chris Gillespie. And Chris Gillespie was just small enough that most of us could get him full extension over our heads and drop him off the snowbank. It was awesome. Like, it was mayhem, and it was incredible and everybody was gathered around and and of course there's one in every crowd and at a Christian school there's a bunch in every crowd and so some goody two-shoes girl ran over and told the substitute teacher and before we knew what was going on there was a storm brewing. Now I say that in the literal sense not in clouds coming but Mrs. Sue Storm came charging out of the school without a coat And she was red in the face and she was hot. Now listen, when a teacher is still hot and it is freezing cold outside, you know that you're in for it. And suddenly, just as quickly as we'd come to the snowbank, everybody scattered, but it was too late. Mrs. Storm had seen what was going on and she called us all together and we went inside. And we, as the boys of Elkhart Christian Academy's elementary school, accomplished what what the weather could not. We achieved the cancellation of recess for a month. 
We were in so much trouble. And it wasn't just a few of us. It was every elementary-aged boy, third grade through sixth. Because while all of us may not have been active participants, many of us were sitting around for our viewing pleasure. And so all of us were implicated. All of us were guilty. All of us carried the blame to some degree and the punishment. This is essentially what Isaiah outlines here in in Isaiah chapter 25. As a matter of fact, we go back and, and coming into Isaiah 5, there are just chapter upon chapter upon chapter where God, through Isaiah, is proclaiming a a prophecy against, a prophecy against, a prophecy against. Everybody is implicated. Everybody is getting in trouble. Everybody has recess canceled. Everybody's getting a whooping. This is what Isaiah is laying out. Everyone may not have been equally involved in what was happening, but everybody carried some blame. And God was doling out punishment. There wasn't much good news going around as as we read through Isaiah. And in the midst of all of that mess, Isaiah writes these words that we find in Isaiah chapter 25. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 25. If you don't, it'll be up here on the screen behind me. Isaiah 25, starting in verse 1. Isaiah says this, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you and praise your name, for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things, things planned long ago. You have made the city a heap of rubble, the fortified town a ruin, the foreigner's stronghold a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will honor you. Cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You have been a refuge for the poor, a refuge for the needy in their distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm driving against a wall and like the heat of the desert. You silence the uproar of foreigners as heat is reduced by the shadow of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is stilled. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. Then he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. And the Lord has spoken this. And that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. The hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. But Moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down into the manure. They will stretch out their hands in it as swimmers stretch out their hands to swim. God will bring down their pride despite the cleverness of their hands. He will bring down your high fortified walls and lay them low. He will bring them down to the ground, to the very dust. So we've got this passage, and I know that it kind of ends with with this warning, but on the whole, Isaiah 25 is actually fairly positive. 
Isaiah is, is recognizing that, that God is going to bring about salvation, that, that God is going to do something good for his people and for the peoples of the world. But, but it's on top of that, in the midst of this, he's recognizing that there is difficulty that they're in. I mean, that's, that's one of the points that Isaiah makes here, that Isaiah also makes throughout the book of Isaiah, that, that praise is always the appropriate response to God's work in our world. Praise is always the appropriate response to God's work in our world. Now, that, that feels good when something good happens in the moment, right? That makes sense when life goes well, when we have a promotion, when a new baby is born into our family, when a relationship is healed, when some kind of windfall blessing comes upon us. We're like, yes, let's praise God. Those are good things. God is worthy. God is good. God is gracious. Praise the Lord. But how is that, does that work when things aren't so good? See, while God's word to and for us is always true and right, it doesn't always feel or seem good, does it? And sometimes God's working in our lives, God's movement isn't positive per se from our point of view. I mean, again, Isaiah 13 through 24 is almost exclusively bad news. Chapter upon chapter, and here's the thing, Isaiah's going to give us chapters 25 and 26 where he is giving this, this praise to the Lord, and 27 he's giving the deliverance of Israel, but then he goes into a whole section on woes. Like, not as in, whoa, that's awesome, but whoa, that's really sad and bad. Just chapter upon chapter of woe. So here we have this, this section where, where Isaiah's like, we're going to praise God because everything that he does is good. And he specifically mentions, we're going to praise God for the destruction that we see around us. Does that not hit anyone else as being really weird? Like just a little bit off? Why would I praise God for that? At least seven times in Isaiah 13 through 24, Isaiah declares, quote, a prophecy against Everyone in the region is getting implicated, and everyone is getting a whooping. Everyone is in trouble. I mean, we see it. Him, he lands the plane in Isaiah 24, verses 1 through 6. He kind of encapsulates exactly what's going on. He says this. He says, see, the Lord is going to lay waste to the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants it will be the same for priests as for people for the master as for his servant for the mistress as for her servant for the seller as for the buyer for the borrower as for the lender for the debtor as for the creditor the earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered the lord has spoken his word praise the lord right i didn't hear any amens at the end of that that, but but is that, that's exactly what Isaiah does. Coming right out of chapter 24 where Isaiah fills out that beginning thesis statement, Isaiah says, Lord, you are my God and I will exalt and praise your name for in perfect faithfulness you have done wonderful things 
things planned long ago. We like to take that verse as a snippet, and we want to cut that out, and we want to apply that to good things that are going to come, to, to resolution of situations, to restoration. But, but Isaiah is actually praising God for the difficulty that he finds himself in. He's calling the people to praise God for the difficulty that God has brought upon them. Now listen, not every disaster that befalls us is an instance of God punishing our sin or trying to correct us. We've lived, most of us have lived in this world long enough, and you don't have to live in it very long to know that poo happens sometimes, right? Like it's just the way of the world as it spins, sometimes the poo hits the oscillator, and that's the way that life happens. And things go sideways, things go bad on us. We, We know that to be true. And sometimes we're feeling the effects of things around us. But let's be honest. There are a good number of times where the difficulty that we are facing and the struggle that we find ourselves in is as a result of our own sin. It is the consequences of our own mistake. And we find ourselves sitting in messes of our own making. The Bible provides numerous examples of that. Rather than allowing the mess of the world and the difficulty of his own circumstances, understand Isaiah had an incredibly difficult life as a prophet. I mean, can you imagine being the prophet that's called to go to all of the the leaders of all of the nations in the world and say, hey, God is super mad at you and he is going to destroy you. And he's going to use this army to do it. Calling the shot, right? This army is going to come in and they're going to destroy you. And this army is going to go into them and destroy them. And, this, and, and eventually, everyone's going to have broken faces. Like, that's exactly what God says Isaiah through Isaiah. God's going to break the face of the earth and it's going to be everywhere. It's going to be a mess. But Isaiah understands that, that this difficulty that he's in, rather than evidence of God's absence... It's evidence of God's existence and his compassionate grace in his life. That's sideways for us, isn't it? The answer is yes. I I mean, because that's how we do. That's the conversation I have all the time as a pastor when things go bad, is where was God? Where was God when this happened? I don't even know that I believe in God anymore. My life is just such a mess and things are so difficult that how could I be in this kind of mess if there is a loving and gracious God? You say that God is good, that God is gracious, that God is loving, but my life is terrible. Therefore, God must not exist. And Isaiah is going the opposite other, other direction. He says, my friends, my friends, my friends, when you're in the difficulty, rather than immediately assuming that God is absent, see what God is trying to do. That even in the dark and difficult times that God is moving, how would our lives and our relationship with the Lord be different? If rather than seeing difficulties as instances of God's absence, we saw them evidence of his work and his movement in our lives. Rather than asking God, why me? We ask God, what are you trying to teach? Or perhaps we ask God, Was it me? I'm not saying we should do that all the time. But I do think that there's a sense when when we're dealing with things in our lives, we we need to think a little bit more critically. 
We need to assess the situation a little bit more honestly. Again, I go back to what I said but a moment ago. I cannot tell you how many times in my life and in conversations with others where people will sit in my office and they will explain to me the realities of what they're facing and they cannot see what is perfectly obvious to me. And that is that the mess of your life is a result of your own stupid actions. It's your own sinfulness. And brothers and sisters, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't see it all the time in me either, right? Because we don't want to see ourselves in the negative light. We are really good at seeing ourselves with rose-colored glasses. We're good at looking outside and seeing, oh, it's everybody else, but less effective at looking at ourselves and being realistic about how we cause our own struggles. You know, we've talked about this before. The, we can't fix something unless we're honest about the fact that there's a problem. We, we, we won't move to doing what's right if we don't recognize when we're doing what's wrong. And part of what Isaiah is calling people to is a, a sense of humble penitence and repentance. Even in seasons, of, and he recognizes that even in seasons of correction, that God is worthy of praise. That his correcting serves as a reminder of his activity in our lives. See, even seasons filled with difficulty and distress can be means of grace. They can be things that God uses to reveal himself and to call us back into relationship with him. Isaiah refers in verse 2 to the destruction of a city. And, and it's, it's a significant understatement, is it not? He says, you will destroy that city. And then he talks about every city being destroyed. God is in the process of destroying many cities, including Jerusalem, his own holy mountain in this. Now in the Old Testament, something for us to understand to help us as we're reading through it on our own, when it talks about the city, it's used much the same as the world in the New Testament. The city is a placeholder for all cities, for all the works of all of humanity. God is going to destroy it all. And even in the darkness, Isaiah sees and celebrates what God is doing. He, he recognizes, again, what we often miss, that even the difficulties God sends as a result of our own sins are evidence of his compassionate grace. Right? It tells us that in the, both the New and the Old Testament, that whom the God, God loves, he chastises or he punishes as a son or a daughter. That if God loves us, he must needs correct us. He can't just let us continue to go our own way that is going to be damaging to our own lives and our own souls. God must redirect us and put us back on the path that he has for us for his purposes. So sometimes the difficulty in our lives are a means of grace because it's God's effort to reorient and refocus our attention on him. To help us to see the avenues that he's opening for repentance as he clears the way for our eventual restoration. Brothers and sisters, God is actively working to draw all to him. God's desire is not to destroy any, but that all would come to repentance. The Bible tells us that. 
something that we miss as, as Christians sometimes. We, we want to see that destruction and we want to see the wicked destroyed and get their just deserts. But that is not God's ultimate goal. God does not bring destruction and devastation on us to leave us that way. He, he wants to bring these things in our lives that he might restore us and to bless us and to move us back into right relationship where he can move and work in ways that are more pleasant. The Bible again teaches this. One commentary says it this way. The destruction of every hope in humanity makes a way for penitent hope in God. It reminds us that we need God and pushes us to turn back to him. Praise is always the appropriate response to God's work in our world. So even in the midst of God-ordained suffering, God is working in our, for our salvation. Let me say that again because that is not, I didn't, my tongue didn't slip and say the wrong thing there. I said what I meant to say. I said it. Even in the midst of God-ordained suffering, God is working for our salvation. How does that fit into your theology, your idea of who God is? That there is suffering that we face that according to Isaiah, God planned long ago for his purposes and for our good. How does that fit into your understanding of God? For most of us, it doesn't fit very well. That God would plan for difficulties in our lives for a positive purpose. But the scripture teaches it over and over again. James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience trials of many kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith brings about perseverance. And let perseverance have its work that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Or we can consider the Apostle Paul, who writes to young Timothy, a young pastor, who's already dealing with struggling. And Paul tells Timothy, hey, Timothy... Join me in suffering for the cause of the Christ. You see, we think of suffering and struggles as being distinctly bad things. And experientially, that is correct. But the reality is that the struggles of our lives can have good net results if we follow God in the midst of them. If, rather than allowing them to push us away from God, we allow them to turn us to God. Today's struggles often pave the way for tomorrow's celebrations. Today's struggles often pave the way for tomorrow's celebrations. Verse 6, we see that while the people are experiencing suffering as a consequence of their sinful rebellion, Isaiah reveals that God is preparing a feast to celebrate those who repent and return to him. He talks about on this mountain, verse 6, he says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of, of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces, and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. 
Scripture tells us here and in other places that God is preparing an amazing party. A celebration where he will bring together all those who are repentant, all those that turn to him, and we will celebrate together. Not because of anything good that we're done, but because God himself is good and gracious. We see that God's ultimate end is not to destroy us, but to restore us. We see these examples throughout the Bible, but you know the one that immediately comes to mind as I read this text is the story of the prodigal son. Even more so when we get to the end, right? I'm going to just read ahead a little bit, and we'll mention it later, but but when you get to verse 10, and it, it talks about contrasting mountains, and it says, surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Verse 10, the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, but Moab will be trampled in their land as straw is trampled down into the manure. I cannot help but think, of the prodigal son, right? If you don't know the prodigal son, you can look it up later. It's in Luke 15. And in Luke 15, it talks about the son who, who goes to his father and says, hey, dad, you're not dying quick enough. Give me your stuff that's gonna come to me when you do die because I wanna go live it up. And for some reason, the father's like, okay. Cuts him a check, sends him on his way, and it tells us that the son went off and lived the crazy life. He went and lived the wild life. He parted it up. He did all that he wanted, and in a period of time, he found himself face down laying in pig poo. True story. Go look at it. And finally, the son, as he's laying in pig poo, wishing that his stomach could process the food, the slop the pig is eating, he says, you know what? Why am I doing this? Why am I swimming in pig mess right now when I know that my servants in my father's house are treated well? I should just go back, humble myself, and ask him for a job. Maybe he'll let me live with the servants. Text tells us that he goes back, and before he even reaches the house, that the father comes out and throws him his arms around the stanky mess that is his son and welcomes him back and calls the servants to put a new robe on him and a ring on his finger and restores him to sonship. And all the son did was repent. Before he even took a shower to wipe off the mess on him, the father was restoring him to sonship. See, the the goal of the father is never the destruction of his children, but their restoration. And sometimes the father has to let us walk off and live in the mess that we've chosen in order that we'll be able to come back and appreciate the grace that he offers. Sometimes we have to know the depths of our own failure and our own sinfulness to appreciate the goodness of the God we serve. See, the truth is that we are all sinners in need of salvation by grace through faith. Brothers and sisters, hear me. None of you were born saints. None of you became saints by your own goodness and your own efforts. I actually hate the term, and I get that it's in the Bible, but we get to feel in ourselves. We repent and God restores us. And we forget that underneath that robe is the stank of our own sinfulness 
That it's only because Christ has covered us through his shed blood that we appear as saints. That it is his holiness that is seen in us, not our own. And if we would remember our own sinfulness, one, we'd be less likely to wander back into it, I believe. And two, we would be much less condescending and calling for the judgment and destruction of those who are failing around us. Because all of us are sinners saved by grace. All of us are sinners in need of the saintliness of Jesus. And none of us gets in on our own merits. And that's the beauty of this passage. Is God's preferred plan is not our death and destruction, but life and restoration. Verses 7 and 8, he talks about the shroud that enfolds all people being removed and the sheet that covers all nations being destroyed. Uh, Isaiah describes a burial shroud and a, a funeral service, if you will, where, where the, the body is buried and covered. And there are two different images being presented here. One is the body being laid out and the burial shroud is over top of the body. And so the, the deceased is at the front of the service, if you will. But then you see the second thing, a sheet that is draped over the nation. And that's the person in mourning coming to the funeral service to recognize the death of a loved one. And and Isaiah says there's going to come a time where the necessity for a shroud to cover the body or a veil to cover our face to hide our tears, where that's going to be removed and destroyed. And he tells us why. And you know why? Because God is going to destroy death. And that all the tears of every eye will be wiped away. There will be no need to cry tears of sadness anymore because death and hell will be conquered. Once again, the prophet points ahead to God's ultimate plan of salvation. The removal of the shame of our sins and the availability of eternal life through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. You and I don't understand this because we have the New Testament. And so we read this and it's obvious to us. But what Isaiah is saying here is scandalous to the Jews of his time. Remember, Jesus argued all the time with the Sadducees about whether or not there will be resurrection. And part of where Jesus pulls it from, where they get the idea of resurrection is from the prophets. Where it talks about God destroying death and the consequences thereof. And Isaiah is revealing that in clear and stark terms throughout the book of Isaiah. That God isn't just going to restore us. God's going to destroy the thing that caused our destruction in the first place. That is awesome. What an amazing gift of grace. Not just that God is going to pull us from death to life, but God is going to destroy death altogether. We're all prodigals who, though unworthy, have been welcomed back into the family, and that is something to celebrate. May we, like God himself, celebrate the sinners that come and join us sinners. May we make space for them to sit amongst us, understanding that they are part of us, that there is no us in them. There is just a we in need of Jesus. The NIV application commentary says this, the book of Isaiah makes it clear that judgment and destruction are never God's intended last words. Rather, he intends that these harsh words will pave the way for happier words of hope and redemption. So just as we praise God in the seasons of suffering and struggle, we must again praise him when he provides salvation. Verse 9, again, he says, In that day we will say, Surely this is our God. We trusted in him, and he saved us. He's looking forward to the day when God would do what he said, when the destruction will end, when the difficulty will fade, and when we will move into the season of hope and restoration, when we will live in our hope 
This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Praising God is always appropriate. Paul says as much. Rejoice always. And I'll say it again in case you didn't hear me in the back. I say rejoice. While nations, cities, and other examples of human might and achievement can and will fail us. They can and will fall. Governments will fail us. Families will fail us. Friends will fail us. Our careers and our jobs will fail us. Every human institution is subject to the consequences and the the shame of sin. But the good news is God overcomes that. That God never will fail. Though we fail time without number, God remains faithful. Trust in him is well placed. In Psalm 30, the psalmist says this, Sing praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name, for his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Even in God-ordained suffering, God is working for our salvation, and there is reason to praise him. There is reason for hope. Because God's hand of blessing will return and rest on those who humble follow him, hum- humbly follow him. But God's foot of punishment will crush those who go their own way. God's hand of blessing will rest on those who humbly follow him. God's foot of punishment will crush those who go their own way. My guy, Kent Wagner, regularly has words of wisdom that he'll give me as we're walking around the church. And sometimes they make me laugh because they're, like, they're on the nose and they're funny. And I don't know why at this time I don't expect them. But I remember one time in particular where I had spoken, I had given a, given a sermon, and I'd felt like I'd pushed and gone a little hard, and, and I'd had a couple of people say that maybe I'd been a little bit brash, and I know that surprises you. And, and, and so I went to Kent, because I was concerned. I was like, in this moment, maybe I did cross the line. So I asked him, I said, hey, Kent, um, were, did you hear the sermon last week? He said, yeah, I watched it online. And I said, um, did I cross a line there? Like, do I need to apologize? Did I go too far? And Kent puts his hand on my shoulder and he, he taps my shoulder a little bit and he says, uh, Dr. J, sometimes we need a hand on our shoulder to let us know everything is okay. But sometimes we need a foot to the hindquarters to let us know that it's not. This was that moment. Not for me, but for you. That that was one of those moments that what we needed as a church was not someone to, to wrap their arms around us and say, you know what, it's going to be okay. It's not that bad. You're doing a good job. In that moment, what we needed was a hand to the hind end saying, you know what, get your act together. We need to do better. And we don't like to think that about ourselves, particularly as adults. How dare someone speak to me in that way as if I'm a child. When we're childish, we need to be spoken as if we're being childish. We, we, we as adults even need called to repentance. We need to be reminded that we don't always get it right, which is why I, I stepped up and asked. I, I know that I don't always get it right. And sometimes we need someone to graciously, lovingly come to us and say, hey, we need to fix this. Especially in the daily living of our lives. 
the things that are going to impact the long-term health and sustainability of the lives that we live. We need someone that we trust that will say to us, we need to get this right. And, and who better to do that for us than God himself? Isaiah contrasts two cities, Jerusalem and Moab, both within view of one another. As a matter of fact, according to one commentary I read, if you stand on the Temple Mount at one point, you can look out and see the valley of Moab. So as Isaiah's giving this, 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 this example, people could picture it in their minds. And he says, hey, look, God is going to put his hand of blessing here upon his mountain. Now his mountain, there are two mountains that he uses. The first is his mountain on this mountain, the mountain of Jerusalem, the temple mount. He says on this mountain, God is going to place his hand. Now, this is not ex- exclusively about God's going to bless his people, the Hebrew people. He's saying, because he mentions all nations, right, all peoples experiencing this blessing. So he says, look, anyone that turns their face to me and pursues me, God's going to put his hand of blessing on them. But Moab was a placeholder, so God's mountain was was a placeholder for all those that were repentant and chose to pursue God. Moab, on the other hand, across the river, on the other side of the tracks, if you will, was the placeholder for those that went their own way, tried to do their own thing. God says, look, you turn back to me humbly, and in my hand, a blessing is going to be on you. But if you go off your own way running, don't, don't be surprised when you trip and you find yourself being squished down in the pig poo. Prodigal son again, right? Now, it wasn't God. It wasn't the father that sent him off to do that. He chose to do that. And sure, the father let him do the walking. He found himself swimming in it as a result of his own actions. But God puts the choice in our hands, brothers and sisters. We do have the choice to wander and do our own thing or to repent and turn back to God. Often the messes of our own lives are of our own making. They are the consequences of our poor, selfish decisions. If we want to go swimming in the poo, though, God will let us. But we shouldn't be surprised when we find that life stinks when we do. That's the good news of the gospel, though, is that God is always ready. He stands ready to reach out a helping hand to those who will take it, to pull us out of the mud and the mire and the manure, and that his plan is to pull us from the mess and to give us a seat at his table in his kingdom by his grace and mercy. See, the bright side of dark times is that God is still good even in the midst of our suffering. The bright side of dark times is that even when we are faithless, God is still faithful and working to bring about our salvation. The bright side of dark times is that no matter how far we've wandered, if we turn, the light of life will always be by our side and will never fail us. God's efforts to correct us are evidences of his great love for us. And if we will humble ourselves own the error of our ways, and turn our attention and affection back to him, he will restore the joy of our salvation, and we will live in his kingdom, not just in eternity, but on earth as it is in heaven. May we see God in good times, but may we also see him in the struggle, and may we praise him and recognize that he sacrificially gives of himself to save us time without number, May we find hope. 
May we pursue his grace. May we experience his salvation. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and grace to each of us, and we pray that you would help us to see your hand of blessing, your guiding hand of mercy, moving us in the way that you would have us to go. God, may we humble ourselves under the weight of your mighty hand. May we repent. May we turn and find your salvation. And God, may we praise you for your goodness, whether we be in the sun or in seasons of storm. God, thank you for your great love, your patience, and your constant pursuit of us for your glory and for our good, even in dark and difficult times. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.